0: It is this being able to look around and see that there is help, and that gets your mindset right. When I say I left, it's it's a bit like um, the Eagles in Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Back there in the 19, at the end of the about 1990 to 1995, 60% of all the USA were wearing a pair of Reeboks. That's an awful lot of shoes. An awful lot. It was an incredible story and you know a, a great uh, thing to look back on. But we, we did so we we did it and we did it well. As I, all I can say to anybody who wants to start off, if you've got a good idea, give it a shot. Don't don't ask too many people because too many people will say too big a risk. Be an entrepreneur.
1: Hey, guys, and welcome to the I Love Success podcast. I'm super grateful for all of you that are here listening, watching, and have decided to create that life that you are proud of. Uh, We're all going through different trials and tribulations in our life, but I do honestly believe that life is very beautiful and there is... There's a lot of cool things that you can accomplish if you set your mind to it. I, I started this show about four years ago in order to share the stories of, of people that have walked the path that you want to walk on so you can learn from them. Of course, you are going to use your own strengths, your own tools, but there's so much to learn from the people that have already done, done the things and went over the all the hard parts of life and you know they're just human i realized that now more than 230 shows in all these super successful athletes entrepreneurs ufc fighters astronauts and you know new york times best selling authors ted speakers they're they're just like you and me human beings so without the Further ado, and before I introduce this week's guest, I just want to say thank you to Remarkable. Uh, I have written down my goals since I was 15 years old, which is 20 years now, and it really works. And I always believed, put pen to paper. Now with the Remarkable, I can use a digital device, but it feels like paper. So if you're like me, old school, but want to live in a modern world, check out Remarkable. And this week's guest is someone that I am very curious on. He is the co-founder of a brand that I'm 110% sure that you have heard of before. Um, The brand is Rebook one of the biggest sports brands in the world. And we're here today to share the story of Rebook and honoring Mr. Joe Foster. So welcome to the I Love Success Podcast.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Peter. It's, uh, it's good to be here and uh, it's good to
1: talk to you. Yes, how nice. Yeah. So uh, you recently released your book, Shoemaker, and I I encourage everybody to read it. And we're going to talk, of course, about the story of Rebook and uh, your journey as a shoemaker. But what I am curious about is also you as a human being, because building a brand on this level requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of mindset to an and ability to overcome things. So how, how have you developed in your mind from when you started Reebok until today, uh, as far as handling pressure and, and tough situations?
0: Well, that's an interesting question because I think the, uh, I think when you find yourself uh, on a certain journey, you, you have to decide when you're making that journey uh, how serious you are. And sometimes it, it's a question of not even making the decision. It's a question of you're on the journey. And, and I think that uh, if, you, if you want to succeed, you realize very soon, very soon, if you want to succeed, you have to face the problems. And not just face the problems, but consider problems as an opportunity. So if you can get your mindset around the fact that this is not going to be easy, it, but it's got to be fun. You've got to enjoy it. So if you have the right mindset of saying, right, we can do this. I, I, I was brought up in a family, a family that had been involved in athletics, in athletic footwork for a 100 years. It was 1895, we go back to my grandfather. So there must be something in the genes. There must be the DNA must be there that says, if he can do it, I can do it. And so with my brother... We set up our own company. And um, when you say you don't look back, sometimes you have to look around to find some of the answers. But, you know, if you do look around, and it's like you say, from being from the old school, you've got to communicate. You have to talk to people. People can – I don't know that they give you lessons, good lessons, but at least you get the, that comfort of being with people, and people can help you. So you need help. And it's good to have people. So when we talk about how do you get the mindset, I think the mindset is something that uh, comes from your history, comes from your, your desires, and yeah. some of the knowledge that you have. You grow up, you learn some knowledge. We, Jeff and myself, we learned about shoemaking yeah. from our sorry, from our family, but we had to learn more. Yeah. We had to go out and learn more about shoemaking than what the family could teach us. And so it is this, being able to look around and see that there is help. and that gets your mindset right.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And I think uh, from my research, I study success um, Mr. Foster and, and and one thing that I have learned and seen is that people that are excelling in in life and going, you know, to uncharted territories like like you guys did is there's some type of drive, and I I read in your book I'm not sure if this was a drive or not but I'm curious to ask because it it's it you said that it was hard to get your father's attention, uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that and was was that one of the driving forces to be to do more in life or? Well, I, I think the the problem is if you
0: couldn't. You can't put your mind back to 1935 when I was born or 1958 when we set out on, on our journey, with Jeff and myself. Um, 1955 probably when Jeff and myself, we'd done national service. We'd gone away from the family for two years and we saw something different and we came back. And, and I think you, you've got to consider that uh, we've just gone through World War II in the 40s. I was born 35, so four years later we were in World War II. I was 10 by the time we came out of World War II. And what does that? Uh, you, you learn from that that your father goes off to work in the morning. He comes home, he has his dinner, and then he he either goes out for in those days it was home guard, so they had to go out and sort of do the home guard bit, which is have a gun and pretend as though you're, uh, you know, you're looking after the country. <clears throat> and if he wasn't there, he went to the local pub uh, with his mates and had a drink. So we didn't see much of father. We did see an awful lot of mother because in those days, I think that's what it was, certainly in the UK, the uh, mother brought up the children, the father went out to work, and if he wasn't working, he was out having some pleasures. So yeah. getting father's attention, yes, was quite... Quite difficult. It was like you, you, when when you grow up, you will join the the family company, unless you have some skills. I was worth well, You want to do things, and uh, I, I had a more of a, an engineering education, and so I was tempted uh, to go into engineering. To uh, uh, in the local, the local business was aircraft, and it's now it's now I think it's called aerospace now, and so I, I could have moved that. Um, I also had temptation when I was in the forces because I was in the RAF, and towards the end of my time in the RAF, I was invited to um, look at becoming an officer and possibly training for uh, a, a fighter pilot. Which in those days, when you're young, that's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, wow. yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been we've been controlling uh, American and British fighters over the North Sea. Just out to sea from Britain, and we're controlling them with what they call practice interceptions. So you're bringing them in together. So it was rather, you know, these, uh, these experiences, this sort of impact on, on young minds. What would you like to do? I would like to. But, um, you know, while, whilst that was very exciting, it was coming back to the family business. And eventually we both came back, we both came to family business, and we both found a business that was failing.
1: And uh, when you realized that you found a business that were failing and you decided to start your own company, Mercury, at the time, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what did your family say at that point? They, they, I, I can imagine that they weren't, weren't that happy to hear what you had to say.
0: Well, of course, we, uh, Jeff and myself, we came back out of the uh, forces in uh, 1955. And for three years, we tried hard to get my uncle and my father to speak with each other, because this was the worst thing. They were running a company, um, but they weren't really working together. They just did their own things. Um, My father was more on machine sewn footwear, and my uncle, he concentrated on what my grandfather had started back in 1895, and that was hand-sewn turnshoe. So you can imagine this old original business. Oh, and by the way, in those days, we were actually supplying Yale University with 200 pairs of shoes every month, and they were distributed distributing them throughout the universities in America. Which So I knew America was a place to get to, Good, but their shoes were old shoes. Jeff, he'd been in Germany. He was in Germany during his two years. And what did he see? He saw Adidas. He saw Puma. He saw the business moving on. He saw something changing. And, of course, unfortunately, father and uncle, they didn't see anything changing. So we were trying to talk to them. But we actually pulled them apart from fighting more than we actually managed to... Get a conversation or he even said to father look you know we need to do something and he used to say well look when Bill's gone that was my uncle and when I'm gone this business is yours and I said well look Dan first thing we don't want you to go that's not you know, yeah. that's not in our thinking for you to go is you know it's not but well before you go this business will go if we can't change it, it will go. And we tried to convince him if, if, uh, if they couldn't change the change we foster business, then why don't he come out with us and we'll set up a separate business together. But no, like I say, he didn't want to. And so it was a very difficult decision. We, you know, we had to make our decision and then when we said we were going, that was it. And I remember that day uh, very well walking into the office area and facing my father and saying, look, you know, you're not going to move, nothing's going to move, so unfortunately we're leaving. And, you know, father said, when? And I said, today. <laughs> and, and that's when he presented me with the, uh, the, letter, the letter opener. I thought he was really intent on pushing it towards me, but he didn't. He pushed the handle towards me and he said, all right, you kill me now. But not a very good way to sort of end your relationship with the, the family business. And okay. mother tried to sit on the, on the fence and you know, tried to sort of talk to us, but obviously by that time, we were committed. We'd done time, we'd done night school, we'd done the um, college to learn more about football. But what we did, we did learn about football. but we also made a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances, a lot of people who were in the industry. And that was really helpful, because they're the ones, when we stepped out of the door of JW Foster's to set up our own Mercury, we needed people. Where do you get this? How do we do this? And so, as far as the family were concerned, yes. We, it was difficult. My brother though, my brother was still living at home. I I had married and had gone out and bought a house, and we had to sell the house to uh, uh, to put some money into the company. But uh, I I, it seemed to be my brother still living at home. uh, It managed to deflect the blame onto me.
1: (laughs) Oh, jaws! You you and your father become ever become friends, and how, how did that affect your relationship with your father?
0: It took some while. Uh, it, it took probably another three years before we came back together again as friends. Uh, I think over that period, definitely over that period, my, my uncle died. And so the business did resort to my father. And I think he saw it at that time, I think he realized and recognized <clears throat> that they hadn't moved. Even in 1958, when Jeff and I set off to do athletic shoes, the football business or the soccer business as we know it in America, that was already taken by Adidas. They had come in and they'd taken the whole business. And so it was a struggle for us to, well, we stay with the family business, which is athletics. And yet it is surprising because my grandfather, he produced a letterhead, and this was in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, He had it on his letterhead, the people he supplied. And he supplied 96 football and rugby teams, all the top British teams with shoes and boots. I wonder even to this day, how did they miss that opportunity when at that point, but he died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935. I happened to be born on his birthday though which did cause a bit of a sensation. (laughs) Same
1: name, same, same birthday.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that was my grandmother. Grandmother, she was a bit of a firebrand. And she (laughs) insisted, she insisted I brought my, uh, my name with me. So he's got to be called Joseph. So yeah, same birthday, same name. 18 months after my, uh, my grandfather died. Um, But you know, it's, uh, it's sort of, you know, there's a long history there, you know, w- w- with a family. And, uh, you know, the DNA is there. Uh, so when we set out, you know, it's like, how do we do? You know, we didn't really know much what grandfather did. Yeah. We, you know, he'd done this and we hadn't been really fed the information. It was way down the line when when we were, when rebot was really taken off. and We managed to look back and we managed to do a lot of... History, searching our know, history, and found just what grandfather had
1: done in his time. Yeah. And what I what I want to dig a little bit deeper to is, uh, as I told you, I study success, and you have so much experience. How did this this journey building, you know, one of the biggest brands in the world? How how did that affect you as a human being? Because I I. I can imagine that you were always traveling, always doing business. How, how do you, how do a person handle that much, you know, uh, work and pressure and, and still, you know, live a good life? Well, I, I think that um, in those
0: days we, we were looking at the late fifties, uh, it was 1960, when we had to change our name, that was a challenge, but we changed our name to Reebok, which in the end became great, it's fantastic. But yeah. we didn't have a computer. Yeah. We We didn't have a mobile telephone. So communication, as soon as I got on an airplane, that was it, until I landed somewhere and into a hotel. And then even in a hotel, communication was difficult. So I I had to go off my instinct that uh, we're trying to sell a product and I'm meeting people. So I have to make decisions. And, and And I think you get used to making decisions. That Yeah, if it's right, brilliant. If it's wrong, we can change it. But you know you have to make decisions. You nobody to refer to. Can't go and talk to people. So okay. In the in the first few years, um, I was sort of part of the factory. Very shortly, I started to travel. First of all, by car, doing local, local sales, and it was whilst well, why was, I was selling locally? Because I'm I'm not a born salesman. Some people can sell anything and they're brilliant at it. First thing you've got to sell is yourself. At least I knew my product. So at least I, I knew what to do when I'm talking about my product. But I would go into retail stores. And the retail store would uh, probably, he'd never heard of me, never heard of Reebok. And he said, uh, who who is Reebok? So I had to tell him the story and where we come from. And our history goes back to 1895. And, and, then, he, and then he would turn to me and he said, look, I've got Adidas. And I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that to me was, yeah, that's a question, isn't it? Why do I need Reebok? And he didn't need Reebok. I had to make him need Reebok. And that's when it came, it occurred to me, we we were in athletics and fortunately for us, there's the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, and they produced a handbook. And in that handbook, we had over 200 uh, names of clubs in the UK. We had, the secretary's name and address, Ah, that was it. A letter to everybody. And I offered them 15% off and if they wanted to become an agent, they could. I got a lot of agents. So our business started to grow. The retailer, the sports retailer, he started to notice, and then they they would ring me on the telephone and say, uh, look, you're you're selling direct. Uh, We'll sell you shoes. I Well, that's fine. And they'd say, well, we have to stop selling direct. And I said, no, I'm sorry. You know, we're not going to sell direct. This is a really good opportunity for us. And it's a good opportunity for you, because I can sell these to you at wholesale price. I'm not selling at wholesale price. This way. So a lot of the retail started to grow. But for me, the athletics uh, business in the UK is relatively small. In America, it's much bigger, because you have, you have college, you have university, and... They all have coaches and coach, coaches are God. You can go to university on a scholarship. So that to me was a big market. And in 1968, that's when I started traveling because the the British um, government decided they would like to help the sports trade to export. And they offered us a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago that's the National Sporting Goods Association of America in Chicago. They offered us a stand, our return airfare, and half of our hotel costs. Well, couldn't That's refuse really. that, could have really. <laughs> it's a good offer. So, uh, so I, went, I went with a friend and we, we took Reebok over there. Uh, I didn't get any orders because the guys over there were saying, well, like your product, yes, where do I buy it from? Well, England. And um, they're saying, is that New England? No, 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 not New England, no. no it's across the water, you know, that little island over there across. Oh, and, and, and the, uh, what I picked up from that was, you know, well, it, when, when you get somebody stocking the shoes over here, we'd, we'd like to buy. Okay, a lot of water was under the bridge and uh, it's 1979. So from 1968, 1979, that's when I got my distributor for America. In between time, I had six failures. We tried and it didn't work for for so many reasons, either connections, usually money. They didn't have the finance because it needs finance. And it was during the 1970s that we had this tremendous surge in running as as a sport. People went out running from nothing, it became tremendous. And it was done by Runner's World. Runner's World was a magazine. Bob Anderson there started his magazine in the late 60s. And um, by the mid-70s, it was a big glossy magazine with all the shoes, all the advertising, all all the events were in there. And he he knew he influenced the business. And his influence so much that he decided that he would start rating shoes. So we started rating the products, and the best products he put down as number one. And I think that at the time was Nike. I think they, they were the, the first number one. But the retail business hated that because Nike needed to import those shoes. And they needed to import them from the Far East. So once you know that you're number one, and that had a tremendous pull, you know, we're talking about a million pairs of shoes. All of a sudden, so many people are running in, in in America that the demand was such. And to get those shoes took at least six months to tool up, to gear up, to start. And of course, six months, seven months, people are starting to say, "Well, what's going to be the next number one shoe?" And so the retailers, the retailers are really mad about this because they got when by the time they got the stock, the the shoes in there, it was. Time to start thinking of something else. I think he, he did this for two, maybe three years. Then I think the, the retailers got, got to him and said, look, you know, we can't do that anymore. So we changed it. He changed it to being a star rating, but you could have three shoes at five stars, maybe four. And this gave us an opportunity because I realized difficult to become a number one. I could be trying that for a long time, but to get a five-star shoe, well, this is an opportunity. And we did get a five-star shoe. I designed Aztec. And Aztec was designed specifically to be five stars. We knew what Bob Anderson was looking for. We knew this right the cushioning, the long-wearing outer sole, but thin, and supination, and whatever it is, nice and cushioned and so on. So Aztec came out in 1978, and it was a great success for us at the Edmonton Commonwealth Games. Right, next thing gone from that, of course, was 1979, February, Chicago. Chicago's very cold. I know you're not in the cold area, but February in Chicago right now, it is cold, very cold. But 79, and uh, we're taking our new shoe. In fact, we had what we call the gold range. Aztec was a training shoe. Midas was a road racing shoe. And Inca was a spike track shoe. Three shoes made the gold range, and I had this on display in 1979. Um, and Kmart came along, and Kmart wanted to order 25,000 pairs of shoes. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a, that's only, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I got to order. About six months' work for our factory. Yeah. But we, our factory, we knew that if we got a five-star shoe, we needed help, and so I had people set up to help us on that but they also wanted a better price because you could get a better price in the far east than we could make in the uk and so i'd also got people who who could make that for me but at at that same show i also met paul Feynman. and paul Feynman, he was only a small uh distributor of uh, outdoor camping in fact it was boston camping Nice little company, but he was running this with his brother and his brother-in-law, and I think he was a bit sort of tired of the same routine year after year. So he said, I'd love to do it. He said, but we need a five-star shoe. So I took him over and said, Paul, this is going to be a five-star shoe. Oh, okay, but we need a five-star shoe. I said, well, okay, we've got to wait till August, and by that time, let's see if we get this as a five-star I and forwards a few times to the states, and I made a few trips um, and when I think it was the last week in July when the, when the magazine comes out, the August magazine comes out, and I phoned Paul. It was rather early for him. I think it was seven o'clock in the morning when I phoned him, uh, and I rather dozy and Paul, Paul, come on, can he, can you get down to the local kiosk and buy one of these magazines you got to?" An hour later he came back and said, "Okay, Joe, Aztec, five stars." That was it. That was the hook. We had got the hook. I said, also, Midas and Inca, they've also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes. That put us onto the American market.
1: I'm curious. You said that you tried six times and, um, and failed the first time. Why didn't you quit like most people would have?
0: Um, I think you get to the point where you, you, you know that the market is there. You know that the, the shoe is right. What you have to do is to find out what, what is that hook. How do, you, how do you get your shoe the attraction? And the biggest, the biggest problem is that you, you realize different things or, or as you go along the road. As we go along the road, we realize that uh, Reebok are not big enough. We're we're fighting well above our weight. We're certainly not big enough to be able to face that demand. So we're going to have to get help. And you get help. Um, And this this occurs from every time when you meet somebody or somebody thinks that it's a good idea. But when they start putting it on the market, they realize this is going to take a lot of money, a lot of effort. And so... So it, it's learning and combining, learning. And I, I knew the reason I keep going is that we we realized that there was an opportunity with five-star, with a five-star shoe. We realized if we could get a five-star shoe, that would be in the magazine. And Bob Anderson magazine was everything. So that's why you keep going. You keep going because you can see the journey. You can see where it's leading. It's a matter of, getting on the right path. And we were very lucky. We were lucky that running became a really big thing in America. Uh, and we were there at the right time. And yeah. people had our image. We used to advertise in Runner's World. But uh, people didn't like ordering. They, they liked to go into a local sports store and pick up of shoes. Things have changed a lot now. I mean, a lot of people now do online, online buying. But, you know, the online business has changed totally. In those days, no, there was no, really no online business. It was, it was quite, a, quite a difficult job to do. So uh, this is what keep, kept me going. I knew oh, we, what we needed was the answer. We needed to find that book, And, of course, when we did. So that kept me going. And, uh, yes, the hook was there, and we, we were successful.
1: So what happened the day the magazine came out? Like, can you just walk us through as a business owner, how, how how did that affect you? Because nowadays we have social media, everything goes viral instantly if something happens. But how long did it take for you to, to see the difference in your business and how, how did it affect your business right after that magazine came out? Well...
0: I think that magazine was a bit like social media today. That magazine was a bit like you picking up your laptop and opening it up, and there was a nice, wow, this is a good thing to go after. So, in fact, it was probably better than social magazine because it was focused, totally yeah. focused on athletics. This one, you didn't have to search for this. If you were a runner, you bought you bought that magazine. That, oh, that was a media straight in front of your eyes. It did take us six months, though because it took us from that magazine to the, in 1980, NSGA show. Paul had decided he would go. We went for it. And so we had our separate stand. The government didn't buy us a stand on that one. Paul Feynman was ready, and we had our own stand at, uh, at the NSGA show. And the orders came in. That was great. But we had a lot to overcome.
1: We had, How do you fulfill those orders, and where do you get the money from? Well the money initially came from barter because fortunately
0: Bata would make the shoes they did a better a better job with the price not as good as the far east so yeah. they, they were good and uh, uh, paul had about twenty thousand pairs of shoes and if you've read the book you realize that we had a problem We had a problem with it. It, We we were using a a material called EVA, which is very, it's used in all running shoes now, EVA. It it is a plastic form of uh, rubber. It's nice, but it's lightweight. And uh, Barter, big company, enormous company, had their own rubber factory. So they were making their own EVA. We bought it in from people who were used to making it. Barter were not used to making it. And they undercured some of their uh, sheets of uh, EVA, which meant that we we got failures in the soul. I can only say that, um, and and this again happened later on, but we're very lucky that we were on the American market because had we had so many failures in the UK, we would have been out of business. In America, no, we just exchanged the shoes and they were quite happy with that. They were were happy to give us more than one uh, chance uh, to make our name. So that was okay. But at the same time, we knew we were still too expensive. And we had gone to the Far East. And we, we got some beautiful production out of the Far East. However, you mentioned how do you finance that? Because from the Far East, Barter had given, had given us a credit line. In other words, sold us the shoes. We could pay him three months down, down the road. In fact, Paul never paid him because the shoes were falling apart. So we we just couldn't buy shoes which were faulty. So that in a way just kept us going until the Far East was ready. But with the Far East, you can't get a credit line. With the Far East, you have to have a bank, a bank that will, will allow you to put down a letter of credit. So it's as though you have the money. And this is what we tried. Uh, and there's uh, I a number of meetings with people, uh, one of the guys who uh, we saw that uh, could have funded the, the, the business, he'd already turned down funding Nike. And he didn't want to be the guy to be seen who, uh, who funded the wrong people. But by funding Reebok, that, he missed out on Nike. As it, as it happened, he missed out on both, which was quite amazing. Um, but uh, through connections, Paul connected with a, a guy called Stephen Rubin, and Stephen Rubin eventually became known as Mr. Sneaker <laughs> because he, he owned so many small sne- sneaker brands uh, and he was British. So they, this was good, a British company. But Stephen didn't really want to own Reebok as a brand. He didn't want Reebok. As a brand. What he saw is that because he sourced shoes out of the Far East, that was his job. That was the job of his company, Ascot. And he sourced these shoes and he, and he saw Paul and his team being able to help by going to Nemus Markets, all, all the big uh, stores in America and doing self-brands. So that's what he saw, first of all. As it happened, Paul would have nothing to do with that. I said, no, no, this is Reebok. And so what what, uh, what Stephen did, he didn't put much money in, but what he did is he gave a credit line, a bit like um, uh, Barter done. So he gave Paul a three-month credit line, but that became very big. Very, very that credit line, and it, it scared Stephen quite, quite a bit at the time. And I, and I think Paul was saying, We're now at, we're now at 20 million dollars, you know, like oh, yeah. Because what happened is that the running business was growing nicely, but then there's a guy called Arnold Martinez. I don't know if you've heard of him, he's down there in uh, in Montecito, actually. Uh, he lives these days, so. and uh, he, he was a tech rep. For the running shoes for Reebok and uh, his wife Frankie she was coming back from these aerobic classes with her friends and they were full of it oh fantastic and Arnold said, what's all this about and so Frankie said well it's it's really it, it's exercise to music and it's great so Arnold said I'm going to have a look at this Arnold went down to the next one and he, he saw the instructor there she is dancing away there uh, exercising away there in running shoes half the class in running shoes the other half no shoes to Arnold that was a moment of well wow, why don't we why don't we make a shoe for these these girls so we went back up to Boston had a word with Paul and Paul said look Arnold we're doing really well we're running it's really good you know and running it's uh, The whole country's running. We can't be making shoes for a few girls down there in in LA. You know, this is something or nothing. (laughs) Uh, Arnold didn't listen, Arnold went round the back door. (laughs) And uh, he met up with some of the production people. And uh, Arnold persuaded them. He was good Arnold, really good, good salesman. He persuaded them, do me 200 pairs of a shoe with a nice sole, a soft, glove-like upper. And let's see what happens. He got his shoes, he put them on the feet of the uh, instructors down there in LA, and some of the girls, the rest is history. It just went crazy, because none of these people had heard of Reebok. They'd heard of Adidas, they'd heard of Nike. Male, sweaty, no. This was a nice, small British shoe company, which just did these beautiful shoes for girls, for women and all of a sudden we became a woman's company. And the business from, an, from $9 million went to $30 million in one year. And then it went up to, I think it was $90 million from there, then $300 million, then $900 million in successive years. And, and so the financing that became secondary to finding the product. How do you manage to get enough shoes to do that? How do you do that? How did you do it? That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Well, luck again. (laughs) Luck came along. And luck had it. That Nike, who had been growing tremendously, all of a sudden, they hit a wall. Things were not going too well. Mm -hmm. And they had to pull out of two or three factories. So two or three factories. We were just growing. So those factories became available. Because Nike had to pull out. And all of a sudden, Reebok could take that. So that's luck. You know, these things happen. They maybe happen for a purpose. But that's fantastic. So we grew. And uh, I think it's the, uh, towards the late 80s, <clears throat> Reebok became number one. We were bigger than Nike, bigger than Adidas. And in, I think it's what's good, my it, intelligence magazine, we became Numa uno. So we were number one. And by the end of 1989, I decided I'd had enough. Because by that time, I'd put on something like 30 distributors around the world. And all I was doing now was flying to whatever city, being picked up by a limousine, being taken to the best hotels and having a wonderful meal and talking through a bit of business. More history than what's next. Because we had it driven from the USA whatever the USA was doing it was driving the rest of the world it's time for me to retire so I did I retired the challenge had
1: gone and a question for you during these years when you're building a business that grow grows so much how do you handle like how do you handle personal life and how do you have time for for everything else uh, well I, I think it, well, I think you don't know. It, <laughs>
0: it takes over. <clears throat> it takes over. And I think any everything that's part of your personal life has to become part of what you're doing. And to an extent he did. You know, my wife never used to like traveling. Never. And it, it was always the invitation, look, I've I've got to do this. You can come along. No, 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 no. Um But then she did travel, on a couple of times with me. Didn't always work, (laughs) but uh, uh, because she'd not traveled, she'd not done the distance. She didn't realize the uh, the cultures, the different cultures, because you learn so much about the different cultures around the world, you know, what means something to them, and what means something to you. So you you become somewhat immune from being shocked. You're not surprised by You, You you accept the culture. And you go along with it and yes it does does make a difference to your life um, and, and I and I was doing a, an awful lot of traveling so yes uh, everybody has to believe in the company yeah. otherwise uh, it doesn't work
1: and uh, just so people can understand like how many how many countries have you been to uh, well I say uh,
0: I, I put distribution on at least 30 after doing USA. So it, it must be around 40, 50 countries, um, maybe even more. I don't know. Sometimes I'm just visiting. Sometimes it's, uh, it, it doesn't work, but uh, it's a lot of countries. And uh, I know a lot of people. I mean, right now we live in France and uh, without COVID, we will be traveling. Probably not this time. but Maybe give us another month. We'd be going to Italy to see Umberto uh, Colombo. He, he ran the Italian uh, Reebok. Or uh, Richard Litzel, who, who ran Germany. And all these different people. We know so many people. So it's great. I mean, now this is, this is what we do. We go, we will drive to, to Italy, um, go to San Cromonte, which is a nice place just outside uh, Varese. And you can look out on the lakes around Italy and have a nice drink
1: of wine and just relax. Yeah. And uh, how, what made you take that decision that now I'm going to retire? And was, was it anything specific that made you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this journey and now I'm gonna relax a little bit? Well, I, I think when you get to that, uh, that size of
0: company, you know, there are so many lawyers, there are so many accountants, and there are other people who are just used to volumes. And so the, the intimacy had gone. I had grown up for many, many years you know, talking to the people that really mattered, you know, just making those decisions, getting it to this point. But once it exploded, you know, it, it requires a different set of people requires a whole set of people who have to come in and look after that. And uh, I think for me, you know, the challenge was, and I'd been challenged for so long, <laughs> that without the challenge, I didn't see the point, really. It was nice to, to sit back. But when I say I left, it's, it's a bit like um, the Eagles and Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And for so much have I kept going back and back, and people asking me to come back. And of course, eventually, um, I give way and I write the book yeah. because so many uh, there's so many versions of where did we come from, and some start halfway. Some say that the Jade We Foster brand just changed its name. Yeah. Well, it didn't. You know, so I think the book is there to put the story down this is you know we have over 100 years now 125 years i think it is now of history yeah. and probably a bit beyond that because my grandfather he learned how to make his spikes from his grandfather so it, uh, it goes back a long time so we have that history that incredible history for the brand and there's an awful lot in there for the brand and i and i think that you know the future is pretty good I, I think we can bring that back now a lot of things that uh and, and this is writing the book, is to, I think, to get to more or less today's uh, citizens of the United States to, to realize that back there in the 19, at the end of the, about 1990 to 1995, 60% of all the USA were wearing a pair of Reeboks. That's an awful lot of shoes. An awful lot.
1: How many million shoes have Reeboks sold? It must be. A, over a billion shoes in total oh,
0: well it, it was it was incredible we we were doing uh, at a height of about 5 5 million pairs a month wow so you know and that was, that's a lot of shoes it could be between 5 and 7 million pairs a month wow. so it's a lot of product and like you say it could be over a billion i'm sure well over a billion by now uh, not as big as nike or adidas are now but it was a A great feeling. And when we were number one, you know, that was an achievement. We got to number one. Fantastic. Time for other people now to make it bigger.
1: (laughs) And how, um, when you look back at, at this journey and your life, what are you most proud of?
0: Well, you know, it's funny.
1: Whilst you're doing it, I mean, it took, I was uh, from
0: beginning to retiring about thirty-one years. that I was with Reebok, and we were running that fast. We were moving that fast. Everything was, you didn't you didn't realize what was happening. It was just it happened. Yes, well, that's happened. And you were just growing, growing, growing. <clears throat> I think the uh, the thing I can look back on now and say, how did we do that? Did we, did we, did we really do that? You know, we, yeah. Well, we did. And, yeah, I think I, I would just go and go onto an airplane. All I had, I didn't, we didn't even have credit cards in those days. In the early days, all I had was a, was a handful of American Express traveler's checks. And luckily, everybody around the world took dollars. That was <laughs> a big thing. Everybody would take dollars. So we were a dollar company way, way back in the 1960s. <clears throat> we, we worked in dollars. We used to buy shoes in dollars. We couldn't buy them in... Uh, in any other currency. That's what the Far East worked in and still work in. So yeah. you're you working dollars all the time. And you, you look back on that and say, how do we get, how do we get into that? Well, it, it happens step by step. These things happen. So, you know, we grow through life and we grow into a company and, you know, we're, we're a dollar company. We sell so many shoes. You know, it, it's something that you say, well, how did we get here? And, uh, and I think, I, well, I know very well that once we had the uh, aerobics market, it was a matter of keeping up with the business. The business didn't choose. We had to keep up with it. And Paul said to me, I remember quite clearly, he said, Joe, he said, yeah, we're going so fast. He said, I, I know how to stop it. But he said, if I do, I don't know how we start it again. So <laughs> we we just had to keep going. We just had to keep going with that business. And uh, it was an incredible story. I mean, you know, a, a great uh, thing to look back on that we, we did. So we, we did it and we did it well.
1: And what do you want to say to, to young entrepreneurs out in the world, watching this, listen to this, they, they might be in a hard situation right now, just like you at one point had to sell your house. They're thinking about how to pay the next month's bill or ha- how to pay their staff, but they have an idea that they believe in uh, what do you want to say to them?
0: Well, what I want to say to them is that uh, when Jeff and I decided that we would do, we would set off on our own, I was 23, Jeff was 25, we were young. We were totally indestructible We just our belief. And I, and I think this is where you need to be. If you've got an idea and you, you've got to know what your idea is, you've got to know where you're going with it. You won't know the end, but you know the, the start. And you've got to believe in yourself, really believe and give it a chance. You know, not everybody manages to uh, have the success we had, but you know, the worst thing you can do is not follow your dream, not give yourself that opportunity. Because I, I, I believe there's as many, if not more opportunities today than we had. We were very lucky to be in the sports industry. And I think the sports industry is still a good industry to be in. I think it's, its growth will continue, <clears throat> as people less and less work manually at making cars, making whatever you're making. They work less and less. They've got they have more time, and entertainment these days, sport is the biggest entertainment you can you can have. So being involved in sport is a good business. But you know, technology now, technology is incredible, and a young mind absorbing all the latest technology must know where to take it. And so believe in that. Believe that you, you've got an opportunity. And if you're willing to work hard at it and follow it, then you can become the next Bezos or Gates or whoever you want to be, you know, their names. But the opportunities that they opened up, yeah, yeah made them a fortune. But more than that, it, they made a difference. They created something different. Yeah. So, yeah. Believe in yourself.
1: And uh, talking about uh, confidence and believing in yourself, is there any specific uh, things you used to do in order to to feel this way? Because not everybody have had that natural, right? Well, I <coughs> I don't know whether I had it
0: natural or not. I think that uh, the the only way I think you can do this is to just just keep going. Just Keep moving. There are opportunities. You don't don't sit and ponder too much about it. If you sit and think too much, I I think that can be self-destructive. I think you've got to – it's always taking risks. Entrepreneur is just a word for taking risk because you wouldn't be an entrepreneur if you didn't take a risk. And so, you know, the risk is there. The risk is that you don't know the outcome. But that's also the excitement. Excitement is you don't know the outcome. So you've got, to, you've got to make the outcome, you've got to change it, you've got to look for it. You know, I had 11 years there trying to get into that American market. Yeah, and I hit my head against the wall. This wouldn't work, this didn't work. Why didn't it work, what do we need? And yeah, would I have learned the fact that we needed what in America is called the hook? No, only by keep going back and back and talking to people, working with people, you realize you need something that turns, that switches it on. You know, it's like a computer. You need to press the button. Otherwise, it won't work. You can't just sit there and hope it's going to open up and tell you things. No, you've got to go in there. You've got to get into it and dig into it. and You, you, you find what the future is. COVID, it's been a disaster. But it's opened up so many opportunities. It is the beginning of a lot of opportunities. Zoom, we wouldn't have been using these things uh, the way we are. It, it, this is probably 10 years in advance of where we would have been without COVID. Yeah. Because everything now is moving. We're online. We're talking to each other. We're getting used to it. The idea that we can talk and you're over there in Los Angeles. I'm over here in France. We're some, uh, what is it, four, or 6,000 miles away. And we can talk like this. And maybe tomorrow I'm talking with Australia. I've talked with Australia. I've talked with the Middle East. So I think this is, this is the future. Technology, so it may not be making running shoes, but there's lots of things, and it may be making running shoes and using new technologies. Now, I had to get on an airplane and travel to meet people, to sell my idea, to talk to them about the idea. Why don't we do this? Um, now we can produce anything. <clears throat> we can send ideas uh, over the internet. You know, we can do so many things. So. Uh, there are kinds of opportunities are there. And uh, what would I have been doing had I just now uh, come to start off in, in business? I don't know. As I say, I could have been an engineer. I could have been electronics. had i have been electronics, I would have been into computers. I'd have been into computing. Maybe I would have been doing something brilliant in computing. I don't know. But you've got Jeff Bezos. you know. I mean, look at the size of Amazon now. You know, I mean, these things are incredible. Uh, so <clears throat> it can be done. I think everybody out there has an opportunity. You know, Even if it's only opportunity to, to assist somebody, say, yeah, well, we can do it again. Because having, having partnership, I had my brother for so many years. Unfortunately, he died, he died of cancer, just at the time when when we got it with Paul Feynman and we just got our five stars into America. And it it's so sad that he, he wasn't able to enjoy uh, the fruits of that relationship. Um, but it, it probably drove me harder. It probably yeah. made me say, we've got to do it. You know, this is, this is what Jeff would have wanted. So we'll keep going. We'll, we'll keep on hitting hard. And we did. And uh, as I, all I can say to anybody who wants to start off, if you've got a good idea, give it a shot. Right. Don't, don't ask too many people, because too many people will say, too big a risk be an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing so open-heartedly, Joe. Um, My final question, and I think you already answered it, uh, is, you know, I'm all about sharing journeys, but at the end of the day, I want the people that are here listening to take action. What is the first step they can do right after this show to get a little bit closer to their dream? Well, I think it's to look for opportunities because there are opportunities
0: all around you. And you'll find if you're not too careful, the opportunities just slide by, just go by. So observe, get the feeling of what you'd like to do. Whatever it is. You might say, well, I don't want to do it right now, but I've got to prepare. So do what you are doing. Get into television, start to talk with people. Start to look at how the world is changing. And it, I, I think it's being a word, which, you know, and, and I think, and I, I have always thought of this with the, whatever you do in business, it must be fun. The three most important things for me were fun, fun, and fun. If you're not enjoying it, and don't get me wrong, you won't enjoy every day. There's a <laughs> lot of days that don't work that way. <laughs> but if you get up with the mindset that you're not going to enjoy that day, you won't. Yeah. So you have to have the right mindset. This is fun. Life is for enjoying. Life is for getting up there and really having a go and uh, making your own way in life. And, you know, it's, uh, it's good when it comes off, and I know not everybody will, will make it, but you'll be also so sorry you didn't try if you didn't make that effort
1: and try Mr. Joe Foster, this has been an incredible time. I truly appreciate you. And uh, for people, uh, I guess they can find Shoemaker anywhere, right? In all bookstores, online. They kind of need Amazon uh, if they need, but they can find it in
0: bookstores in, in America online. In the, there's an audio version and a Kindle version as well. So, yes, it, it's out there. Now, that's my my last campaign. <laughs> Well, maybe not my last campaign, but certainly <laughs> my present campaign now <laughs> is, <coughs> is giving everybody to my shoemaker. Um,
1: yeah, of course.
0: Seems to be a good read, and I hope some people can learn from it. They might learn just how useless I was at times. <laughs> but, you know, and when you're, you're so useless, you can still make it. You can still get there.
1: I love that, and I love how the book starts. It's like the, with your two confessions that you you don't like running and you're a lousy shoemaker, and then the whole story begins. So, uh, yes, we'll, we'll we'll have the link for everybody that wants to you know really learn from an incredible human being who has you know not only talked the talk but walked the walk. Um, thank you so much, and thank you everybody that is here listening. If you wanna check us out, go to ilovesuccess.co. There's more than 200 episodes of just amazing and incredible people. This is all for free for you to enjoy. But as I told you, I want to help at least 10 million people in 10 years to achieve their dreams. So if you enjoy this conversation, please share it with somebody that needs to hear this message, that needs some positive light in their day today, and that can see that even a, even a man who founded one of the biggest companies in the world is 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 a human being, just like us. So thank you so much, everyone.